right. Good morning, church. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving week. Uh, it's a little quieter today. Uh, I'm guessing it's because there's a BTS is in town, so maybe half the church is getting ready for the concert. Uh, they're part of that army, not the Jesus army, but it's all good. Uh, but everyone else, maybe, I know it's the time of year where people get sick or whatnot. So, but for those who are able to join, I'm always thankful to be able to worship and share God's word. If you're new, again, as just mentioned, hopefully we can give more information after worship. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff, and we want to welcome you again. I just want to double down on what Sophia just announced. Uh, so Ezra, my son, he just turned one. And I was looking at, you know, our house, which is basically uh, Ezra's kingdom. <laughs> Anyone with children under two understands they took over the home. And, yeah, so for his birthday, he got all these gifts, all these toys to the point where he had, like, some repeat toys. And I was just, oh, sorry, he already has that. Can you return it? And so when Sophia told me about this uh, opportunity, it did kind of break my heart thinking, wow, there, there's legitimately children who's going to spend Christmas season not only without toys but without family, without loved ones. And here I am, like, I got an abundance of toys for my son. And so, uh, you know, for those who are curious, our church, we can't do everything, but we try to give opportunities to do something. So amidst the Black Friday shopping and the Cyber Monday where you're looking for all these good deals, maybe you can expand your heart just a little bit as a church as we try to partner with Olive Crest in this way to just provide toys. Again, it's not everything, but I think it's a small way. And just know our church, we don't want to just make these random spurts, but we want to continually grow and seeking opportunities to be a blessing, to be a light to our city, to our community. So thank you to the Mercy team, obviously, for seeking out opportunities to make it easy for us. So if you can, just grab a toy or two, drop it off next week or two weeks from now after worship. And that's just a small way that I think our church can do something uh, in this holiday Christmas season. All right, well, that being said, it's crazy to think it's almost December. So happy almost December. And it's also crazy to think that 2021 is almost over. I feel like 2020 just happened and we're already almost into 2022. And I think I vividly remember 2020, winter of 2020. Because if you've been at our church for over a year, that's when Christmas and Thanksgiving all happened virtually. Crazy to think that just a year ago, that's when COVID kind of respiked right around November. And so all the more I'm thankful that we're able to meet in the flesh and never want to take that for granted. And hopefully you too, whether it's uh, worshiping with the church, whether it's spending time with quality time with loved ones and family, let's always be thankful uh, for opportunities like this. Now, if you didn't know today, it's not just any Sunday, but for the church historically, the Sunday after Thanksgiving always marks a special time because it marks the season of what's called Advent. Now, if you don't know what Advent is, it basically translates to mean coming or arrival. And Advent season is basically the four weeks after, Christ, after Thanksgiving heading up into Christmas that the church kind of prepares for, anticipates, and celebrates the coming of Christ on Christmas. You might be familiar with it, whether you're Christian or not. And if you ask the average person inside and outside the church, hey, so what's Christmas about? I think most people will tell you it's about the birth of Jesus. So that's where if you go to uh, home decorations or you go to like Hobby Lobby, one of the most common scenes you'll see is the whole nativity scene of baby Jesus in a manger. And even though that is a distinctly Christian thing, that's just widely accepted, especially here in the West in America, that, hey, Christmas is about Jesus. And you'll hear people sing about it, even if they're not Christian. Uh, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And so actually it's fairly common for people to just know at surface level, oh, Jesus is the reason for the season. But the common issue that arises obviously year after year for our consumeristic culture is obviously we often care for the season far more than we care about Jesus. Even though we say that Jesus is the reason. And even churches become fixated around this because 
you know, the stressing of the church is now behind stuff like decorations or, or caroling or gift giving or white elephant exchanges or, or shopping more than it is actually about Jesus, right? And so for the next four weeks, we really want to take time to consider uh, through the preaching and this series. So who really is Jesus? Simple question. Who really is Jesus? And if you've been a Christian for a long time or you're just discovering it, it is helpful and applicable for all of us to always rediscover or discover for the very first time who is Jesus. And especially in light of Christmas, what is the significance of him being born into this world as a human? So in light of Advent, we're starting a short series, as Jessica mentioned, Fully God, Fully Man. And that's the aim of this leading up to Christmas. A little more clarity as to the significance of Christ coming into this world. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1, our text for today, John chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be on the text. And a brief intro here, uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, it is probably the most famous and most explicit description of who is Jesus, who is Christ of all four of the Gospels. I'm not going to go over all 18 verses. I'm just going to highlight a few. But if you ever are curious and you want a summation text of who is Jesus from the fullness of time all the way to his incarnation, that's the text to go to. So let's read together. Starting from verse 1, we'll read verse 1 through 5 and then skip down to verse 14 and then 16. It's the reading of God's word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Amen. It's the reading of God's Word. So one of the most dangerous mentalities that has plagued me throughout my life is captured by this two-word phrase that it good enough or, or close enough. Uh, this mentality is why I will never be a good baker because whenever I try to bake something and it gives me recipes for precise measurements, I will never care about the precision. <laughs> if it says two cups, I grab a cup and then I say good enough. Or if it says you got to do a certain, you know, number of swirls or beating the egg or whatever, I just kind of, kind of eyeball it, do just enough that I feel like it's sufficient, and then I'll do that. And so therefore, the recipe never ends up panning out the way it's supposed to. But the consequence for being slightly off in baking is very minor, if you think about it, right? The worst that could happen is the outcome is not quite what it should be or what the picture looks like. But I share that because there are times in life when being close enough or having a it's good enough approach is actually quite deadly in consequence. Let me give you an example. There's a famous flight, uh, Korean Airline Flight 007. I don't know if you guys know about it. In October 31st, 83, the flight departed from Anchorage, Alaska, like a routine flight on its way to Seoul, Korea. And so without the crew knowing, the navigation system of that flight its navigation was one and one-half degrees off, which is very, very minor. It's very minuscule. It's almost undetectable, which is why the deviation was so tiny that no one picked up on it. The pilot didn't pick up on it. The staff didn't pick up on it. The crew didn't pick up on it to the point where they would almost look at it and be like, it looks good enough. It looks about right. It was so unnoticeable that even 100 miles out, it was undetectable. They still thought they were on par. They were on course. But as the story goes, as the plane continued, off this slight deviation into the Pacific Ocean, 
and it strayed more and more from its proper course. It actually ended up flying over Soviet airspace. And that was very tense times when it comes to the, the world at the time. And so as tragic as it is, the story goes that a Russian radar picked up the air, fighter jets went into the air, and they shot the plane down. And everybody died. And it all boils back to that slight deviation, one and a half degrees off. And so clearly this is a situation where being close enough is not going to cut it. There were major consequences. And I share that to make the point. There's certain questions or certain situations in life that demand the utmost precision and accuracy. Because it can very well be the matter of life and death. For example, if you go to a pharmacist they, and they tell you, you should take like this much. It seems good enough. That's not good. Find a new pharmacist. Or in your tax documents, if you kind of do the numbers what you seem close enough, they're going to get you. You need precision. And along that train of thought, I would argue the most important thing that you need absolute precision and you have to get right as a Christian is the answer, who is the historic Jesus? You have to get that right. If you deviate even slightly to understanding the fullness of who Christ was, your entire Christianity will get off course in a matter of time. And so in light of that question, and to kind of kick off this series, there's three things I'm going to point out uh, from the text, which is, Regarding incarnation, now it's a big fancy word, but incarnation, I'm going to explain later, essentially as John is describing, is the idea of God becoming flesh. So the three points are first, the doctrine of incarnation. And this is going to lay the foundation for the entire series. So bear with me as foundations are often boring, but it will helpfully lay a very important foundation, the doctrine of it. Number two, the purpose of it. So why did God even become man? He didn't have to. And thirdly, a few implications and applications for us. So first, the doctrine. So the word incarnation comes from two Latin words, incarnal, which basically translate to make into flesh, to be made flesh. So carnivores are flesh eaters. Carnal means you submit to the desires of your flesh. So the basic definition of the incarnation is that God became or took on flesh in the form of man. We see John describe this in verse 1 and then in verse 14 when he says, the word, which was referring to Jesus, okay, a lot of theology packed in here, the Logos word who was in the beginning, aka he was not created, he was part of the Trinitarian Godhead preexistent, the word being Jesus Christ who was God, in verse 14 says, the word became flesh. Now that's a lot to digest in those four words, okay. If there's nothing else that's going to theologically destroy your mental capacities, just think about the fact that God Almighty became man. That just should blow your mind. Anyways, so every single word here matters a lot because if you didn't know, actually almost every cult or heresy usually revolves around deviations on the belief and understanding of who Jesus is. I don't know if you guys know that. A lot of cults out there actually are very Christian in a lot of their practices and a lot of their beliefs. But where it usually goes off is some will say, we all believe in Jesus, but some people say he was just a good teacher, though. He's just a man. Or others say he's like Elijah. Jesus was just like a prophet. Or others will even say Jesus, he was God. He was a God, but he was not Yahweh. He was not the God. And so because all of these kind of disputing heresies were kind of revolving around the person of Christ, the early church said, hey, let's get together. 
let's make sure we get this right. Because if we're off about this, we're off about everything. And so they made what's called, I'm going to get a little nerdy here, something called the Chalcedonian Creed because they made it in Chalcedon. And they got on the same page to spell out five truths, which you'll probably never hear again outside of this theological little snippet. But these five truths were basically the guardrails of the church that still hold today on who Jesus is in light of the incarnation. So what are they? Number one, the first statement they all agreed is Jesus has two natures. He is God and man. What this means is that Jesus is not someone like God. He is not a representative of God. He is not close to God. But he is himself God. Very, very important distinction. At the same time, without ceasing to be God... The mystery of the incarnation in verse 14 is that God in his divine nature also took on flesh and became man without conflating or compromising his divinity. Jesus is two natures. Secondly, clarifying, they also said each nature is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man, hence the title of the series. And this is an important clarification because some people started to think, Oh, so he's God and man. You put that together. So he's 50% God, 50% man. And the the church, early church fathers got together and said, no, 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 no. Jesus was 100% God. And at the same time, he was still 100% truly man. Starting to get mysterious, right? But this is what scriptures say. And thirdly, to also guard against certain heresies, they said, and each nature remains distinct. Because some people start to say, okay, so he's God and man. So, and that's why I personally don't like the phrase God-man. Because it's kind of like, Jesus is kind of like a scrambled egg now. He, he's not God and he's not man. He's like a, like a hodgepodge of the two. So he's like a third entity altogether. And the church said, no, 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 no. He is distinctly God and distinctly man and he is fully both. Without being some sort of smoothie of them together. And yet, point number four Christ is still only one person. Jesus never refers to himself in the plural. He never says us, the God part of me and the man part of me. In the same way that the Trinity is a mysterious three in one, Jesus is two distinct natures, but he is one person. Which leads to the fifth point, which answers a lot of questions. Maybe not satisfactory, but it does give an explanation. Things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. So what does that mean? Can God get hungry? Not really, but man gets hungry. So even though only one of the natures is true, it is yet true of the person of Christ. Does God all, all, all powerful? Is man all powerful? No. But Jesus in the person of Christ united in his divinity and in his humanity, things that are true of only one nature are true of him. Okay, theological class over. Now all of these were meticulously worded and added to guard against forms of inaccuracies on the person of Christ. Because again, it goes back to the premise, slight deviations on who Christ is lead to deadly consequences. And even though it's boring, can I argue in this day and age where you have so many ideologies and so many cultural things that are challenging all the aspects of Christianity to the core, I think the only way you're going to make it as a Christian is if your foundation is solid. And here's the thing. Foundations are boring. Nobody gets excited about a foundation, right? A lot of our church, we're house hunting right now. Nobody goes, hey, you know that house you checked out? How's that foundation, dude? Nobody does that. Nobody goes into a house and, you know, 
all they care about is the glitz and the glamour and, the, you know, the reno you're going to do on the kitchen and the lighting fixtures and the color of the, the splash all behind it. But nobody goes, oh, the, this is all that matters right here, the foundation. Nobody does that. Nobody cares about that until, what, there's an earthquake or there's a disaster. That's when the foundation matters. And let me tell you, the, the color of the paint on your walls, your fancy furniture, your TV size, all of that does not matter when disaster hits. And in that light, what will matter to sustain you in the long run is your foundation of your faith. And if you get the foundation of Jesus even slightly wrong, everything else will go wrong, if not now, later down in the journey of faith. And it's very heartbreaking because I think we're slowly entering this era where I know some of you personally, I know you know some people personally, all those people who were Christian, what's happening? There's a slight deviation in their life and the more older we're getting, we're seeing people that were legitimately quote-unquote Christian either are quote-unquote deconstructing their faith, which I would argue just shows it was never properly constructed in the first place, or there's people who are abandoning their faith. And in my opinion, all of that points to the fact that they did not have a solid foundation in who is Jesus. Now, at our church, a lot of us are churched. So I think a lot of us have no problem confessing, okay, pastors, I get it. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. I learned that in vacation Bible school growing up. But I think what's more applicable for us is the temptation to disproportionately understand and relate to Christ in one end of a spectrum. Here's what I mean by this. The classic temptation I think a lot of us will face, and I think a lot of factors contribute to this, is this. Are you more naturally prone to think of Jesus as man or to think of Jesus as God? Now let me diagnose this a little bit. If you're like me, some of you naturally gravitate more towards emphasizing and believing the deity of Christ. Right? So if you grow up in a more traditional conservative background, this is very common for a lot of us. And the good thing about this is your relationship with Jesus is characterized by words like, like reverence and respect and submission. And you're naturally inclined to want to obey him. But here's the thing. The, the, the telltale sign that this is you, that you have a disproportionate view of the deity of Christ, is you don't feel close to God. You don't feel close to God. Let me tell you, I have a passion to obey God. God is my commander. He is my Lord. He is my general. But when people say that Jesus wants intimacy with me, I shudder. It gets very uncomfortable for me. Even though I know God is fully God and fully man. See, the concept of intimacy is foreign to me because even though I confess that in my theology Jesus is fully God, fully man, functionally, the way I actually view him is he's probably more God than man, though. Probably 80% deity, 20% human. Like some sort of superhuman. Like he's kind of like me, but he's not really like me. And if that's you, and this has happened in my own faith experience, the problem with that is you'll run into moments of you have legitimate human suffering and struggle, and you feel like you cannot go to God because God cannot relate. Or your problems are too small and insignificant for Almighty God. And so there becomes this dissonance where you kind of revere and fear and worship God. But in the real nitty-gritty human experience, God is not applicable because he's too high and mighty for you. On the flip side, 
others of you gravitate more towards emphasizing and believing the humanity of Christ. And I've always envied these people, right? These were the people growing up in junior high. They wore the Jesus is my homeboy shirts. They talked about Jesus like he's their neighbor next door. And, you know, for me, I'm like, no, he's king. It's like, nah, bro, he's my friend. And we were just arguing all the time. And the good thing about these people is you're comfortable with Jesus. You are super comfortable. He's a companion. He feels like a supportive peer who's always there for you, who always understands you. You have no problem airing out your feelings to Jesus. So whereas if a praise leader cusses in their song, I shudder and think, oh, my gosh, that's uncomfortable. You think he's just being raw with Jesus, bro, right? It's just very different understandings. Here's the problem. The great thing is you feel close and intimate with him. The issue is you don't fear him. You don't fear him. You don't care what he has to say. When he gives commands, you ignore them or you feel like, whatever, I don't care. Let me see. Would you say that to a god or to a king? And so that's the problem. And while you'll never say Jesus isn't God, functionally the way you treat his commands and his words show you don't really think the words carry the weight of God himself. And if that's you, you'll run into trouble because it will be very hard for you to take sin seriously your life will look very similar before and after Christ. And you'll live a very frivolous Christianity, which in scriptures is not possible. And if you're not a Christian sitting here today, please know the doctrine of the incarnation, it is one of the most glorious, beautiful, yet mysterious truths of Christianity that sets it apart from any other religion out there. And Christmas is probably the best time to really weigh and consider that because Christmas is when God manifests himself in the flesh. So all that is to say, point one, you have to have a precise and accurate understanding of Jesus as God incarnate. Not just doctrinally, but practically as well. Which leads to the second point, the purpose. Why did God even do it? Why did God become man? Now there's many ways to answer this question. But I'm going to highlight the two that's shown in the text. First in verse 14 it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay. So the first reason we see that God became flesh it's because for some reason he had a desire to dwell among us. You, me, his people, sinful people. Now let's unpack that a little bit, okay. Why that word dwell? It's such, a, such an uncommon word. Why not just uh, to hang out or live among us? The idea of dwelling was a very particular allusion to how God would dwell with his people in the Old Testament. So dwelling was when God would show up in the temple or the tabernacle, and that's how he would make his presence known and revealed to the people. And that was how God's presence would be manifest in the Old Testament. Well, what John is saying is he's using that same word and concept to say, whereas back then the presence of God was shown up in a location, a.k.a. temple or tabernacle, now the incarnate presence has shown up in the person of Christ. Jesus is your meeting place with God. Now, why would God want to dwell with us, okay? Why would God want to dwell with us? I think it's important to do a little bit of a history lesson to understand how weird it is that God would desire to dwell with his people. You see, it would be one thing if the tone of the Old Testament narrative was that God makes his presence known, God speaks to his people, and they are always receptive, they are always welcoming of it, they embrace him, they're obedient, and they're responsive. But the narrative is overwhelmingly in the Old Testament one of constant rebellion, turning away from God, falling into sin, rejecting his word, a.k.a. like a lot of our lives, isn't it? And so God, don't you think, has every reason to remove his presence? Like I talk to people all the time and I say, hey, why don't you try to reach out to that person? And usually what they'll say is, I've tried already, man. I tried messaging them. I tried, you know, 
doing whatever I could to reach them. They just ghost me. They leave me at scene. And so isn't it natural human tendency that when you feel rejected time and time again, even in marriage or friendships, you want to retract? It's painful to be rejected all the time. It's painful. But for some reason what God does, and I'm going to argue because it always centers back to, it's because who he is. What God does, particularly in the incarnation, is a, a necessary overflow of who he is. And it makes no human sense as he draws even closer to us despite all that rejection. Knowing that he's going to enter hostility. Why? Because the world is darkness and darkness hates light. Now that might be a lot of fancy theological jargon. So let me give a human analogy that I personally am very moved by. So one of my favorite missionaries, her name was Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, she passed away in 2015, and her testimony is well-known. I've shared it at our church before a couple years ago. But if you don't know her story, basically, she married her husband, Jim Elliott, in their 20s. And they both had this passion and desire to spread the gospel to a particular unreached people group in Ecuador. Okay, they were called the Aka Indian people. And already that was kind of a confusing choice of people because everybody knew, hey, the Aka people are infamous for being extremely hostile and violent to the point that sometimes they'll kill each other. So all the more, if you're a foreigner, you're probably going to get killed. But Jim Elliott, feeling convicted by God, he told, told his wife, Elizabeth, hey, that's what I feel called to. I feel convicted. So they got married. They moved together with their family closer to the tribe. And it's, it's always challenging when you hear what their rationale is. Elizabeth Elliott sharing why he went. She says, Jim went simply because he knew that those people belonged to God because he was their creator and their redeemer. And so he had no choice but to willingly obey that's a whole other sermon on itself, discipleship and obedience. But he goes, and long story short, January 8, 1956, the team of five missionaries, including Jim Elliott, all young men with families and wives, they were speared and killed by the Aka tribe. Now, here's where it gets weird, okay? So Jim Elliott and his wife are doing nothing but good to this tribe. They're giving them gifts. They want to share the good news of the gospel. They're giving them goods. They want to make contact. And at the point of contact, they kill them. And here's where it gets weird. The person you would think that would be the most angry and that would want to stay the furthest away from this tribe is Elizabeth. <laughs> they killed her husband. And then October 1956, she makes a decision. She says, I'm going to take my three-year-old daughter, Valerie, and we're not just going to visit the tribe. We're going to live and dwell with them. We're going to set up camp there. So she moves her and her three-year-old daughter to dwell with the Aka people. She essentially becomes part of their tribe to understand who they are, to share the love of God with them in the flesh. And she becomes a member. And the story goes on that after moving into her village, the tribe says what led us to accept Jesus was her display of forgiveness and acceptance of us. And obviously the beautiful testimony is one of the first people to receive the gospel and Christ as his Lord and Savior was one of the people who speared the missionaries. Now, what's going on here? Obviously, when you hear that, it's hard not to be moved and challenged, but also confused in a way. Like, why make your dwelling place with your enemy? Why make your dwelling place with your husband's killers? Why leave the comforts and security of your home? Why pitch a tent in the jungles of Ecuador, which is physically strenuous in itself? And I think what Elizabeth Elliot would tell you is, She's simply following the incarnational example of her Savior. Isn't that not exactly what Jesus did? Leaving the comforts of heaven, descending into a hostile world, taking on flesh to dwell with sinners who he could not help and love and draw near to. So that's point number one. Jesus wanted 
nearness to us. He wanted proximity to us. And the only way he could do it is by becoming one of us to dwell among us. And the second reason we see in verse 14 is the word became flesh and not only dwelt among us, but in him we see his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Now glory is a loaded word, obviously, but if I can give a simple definition, God's glory essentially is defined as the sum of all his attributes and his perfections encapsulated. In other words, the glory of God is whatever can be described as that which best captures and displays who God is. So the Old Testament, for example, a lot of times the glory is manifested through just beams of radiance and light because it's showing he's just so pure. He's just so holy that it just emanates beams of holiness off of him. And so the Old Testament, you see kind of glimpses of the glory of God, right, through visual manifestations or through miracles and particularly through the prophets who would speak and represent God. But John is saying all those were just small previews and glimpses, but we now have a physical manifestation of the perfect glory of God captured in the form of a person. And that's where Hebrews 1 makes this super clear. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is kind of massive if you really consider what this text in Hebrews is saying. It's saying that everything you need to know about God, everything that God desires to reveal about himself is exactly perfectly captured in the person of Jesus. That's a massive truth to digest. I talked to Pastor Tom recently, and we went through a father study together because, you know, we have a lot of dads who are with young sons. And he's talking about how his firstborn Judah, a lot of us know him, right? Judah's pretty famous at our church. He's, uh, I think, six years old, and he says he's having slightly more intelligent conversations with him. Slightly, like just slightly. And so he'll ask him, Jude, uh, do you believe in God? And Jude says, how can I believe him? I can't even see him. So smart, right? Genius. And Tom's like, you're right. But I would correct Tom. I would say, actually, the author of Hebrews and John would say to all the Jews of the world, you can see him perfectly represented and displayed through the person of Christ. You see, the eternal God who upholds the universe, the almighty God who has all power and authority, has declared in a mysterious way that the incarnate, living, breathing person of Jesus is a physical, perfect manifestation of himself in the flesh. Now, all of this goes back to, so why did he do this? If you aren't picking it up, isn't it hard to ignore the obvious fact that the dominant tone behind the motive of the incarnation is fundamentally relational? God became flesh to dwell among us, to draw near to us, to reveal himself to us, to become one of us. And so Christmas and Advent, it is a preparation, anticipation, and a reminder of the fact that God, for whatever reason, and as someone who kind of exemplifies his deity more, it makes me uncomfortable to say, he seems to be crazy about his people. So crazy that he would become one of us. Like I have crazy thoughts one day, so uh, I really don't like ants. I really hate ants. Uh, Ezra, he has this fun thing that he does these days where when we feed him food, if he doesn't like it, he feeds the ants and it pisses us off. So literally we'll give him food. If he doesn't like it, it's like a crane. He'll pick it up, he'll drop it, and he'll watch the ants eat it. It's like, I don't know where he learned that. It's kind of funny, but it's actually terrible in a way. And I'm just thinking like, man, I really dislike ants. I hate ants. I would never become an ant. 
You know, like, why would I ever do that? And yet I think we take so lightly the cosmic reality that John tells us in four simple words that the divine became flesh. If Jesus is captured in a little nativity scene for you and he's just little baby Jesus, you forget that there is God encapsulated in him. That the baby in a manger while being fully human is God himself. He became flesh. And Advent is not about how Jesus accepted our invitation to come save us. Advent is about God who breaks through because his love drives him to initiate a rescue. Though we never asked for it and though some of us never even asked for it today. And we'll deal with that when Christmas comes. But there's an important detail and a highlight. In verse 14 it says, we have seen the glory of the sun. And again, glory is such a massive thing. What does it mean? What is his glory? And John, he kind of gives you a word to describe his glory. It says, we have seen the glory, and he is full of grace and truth. And he goes, doubles down in verse 16, which is becoming my favorite verse these days. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Okay? Now, that wording is very funky. Grace upon grace. It reminds me of when I went to my honeymoon in Mexico uh, my wife and my, me and my wife Angela were hanging out on the beach, and we're not really beach people, so I tried to make it fun. So I had my GoPro, and I was like, hey, I don't know why I thought this would be fun. I was like, let's go to the beach, and let's just jump on the waves, right? <laughs> like, what do you do at the beach? So we're throwing ourselves on the waves, and then lo and behold, her sunglasses fell off, and they fell into the Mexican Ocean, right? And so for the next two hours, I was looking for sunglasses as if I would ever find it in the ocean, and I turned into literally like a potato chip that day. I was so red. And all I remember that day is just getting pounded by waves. As I'm looking under, getting pounded and pounded, relentless waves crashing on me. And a lot of commentators will say, that's probably the closest picture of what grace upon grace means. It means you're being inundated and overwhelmed by it. I think a lot of us, when we think about the grace of God, we think about it as an a exact deposit that we need for our repentance, don't we? God, I've sinned. Can you give me some grace? Okay, here's $5 of grace. The wording here is not just that he is gracious, not just that he is full of grace, but in his fullness he is full of grace upon grace. And this is really, really good news. Because God in his flesh could have manifested himself in justice and wrath. He could have manifested himself in power and authority and damnation. But instead, the Bible tells us that the glorious perfect radiance of God in the flesh is a gracious God. That Christmas sees the descent of a gracious God. And that's where if there's one word that can capture the essence of the Christian faith and the person of Christ, it is grace. And I would argue for a lot of Asian American Christians, we study grace, but we don't experience it. We talk about it, but we don't really know it. It is not the theologian who understands grace. It's the sinner. The sinner who is helpless, humbled, unable to fix himself. And isn't that the problem for so many of us? We're so competent. There's so many avenues and resources to better yourself. And so therefore grace is a concept. It is not a wave of majesty and power in your life. And so that's the thing. This Advent season, what's so, what should make us all marvel is the fact that usually when you think of the glory and the nature of the glory of God, 
If you're like me, don't you think, hey, what is the picture of the glory of God? You think of God on his throne high and mighty with lightning bolts and angels worshiping him. And he is kind of receiving the worship and praise and honor that he is due. Amen to that. That is true. There is a time and place for that scripturally. But Christmas, Christmas of God becoming man and humbling himself, being obedient to the point of death on the cross. And the incarnate glory of God is not seen in a king robed in majesty or receiving the praise of men. But the most glorious display of who God is, and I hope this humbles you if you're not a Christian here today, is God is not some sort of killjoy who wants to take out stuff for your life or make you go on mission trips or make you feel guilty about the life you're living. But the glorious display of who God is and how he wants to reveal himself is Christ on the cross. That is glory epitomized in the incarnation. Christ on the cross. And Satan will do everything he can in this season to make you forget about that. That the foundation has always been about Christ on the cross and the implications of what that means in your life. There's a lot that can be said about that and we will say it in this further of the series. But a couple implications then. We have to understand then it is only in the accurate and biblical incarnate Jesus that you can actually have legitimate hope. Like you have to really get who he was, not only back then, but for all eternity. Because I'm sure we'll unpack this truth later too. What is the most profound and amazing reality of the incarnation is that Jesus didn't take on flesh and then return to divinity. Jesus in his incarnation took on flesh for all eternity. That should blow our minds. That he's so in love with his creation. He's so in love with you and me. He so wants to be relatable for us and relevant for us. That he doesn't just do it for 33 years. He says God took on flesh for all eternity. That's why when he resurrects, he resurrects in a physical bodily form. And obviously as we've heard if you grew up in the church, the disciples know it's Jesus. Why? Because he eternally has the scars as well. That should blow our minds. So then. If that is the case, we need to get him right. Because I would argue our issues and problems in life grow in proportion to how inaccurate our understanding is or our belief is in who Jesus is. For example, it is only if Jesus is fully God that you can actually trust him. That he is sovereign and in control of all things. That he has the power and authority to answer your prayers. Because if Jesus is anything less than God himself, you cannot place your full trust and faith in him. And so like these cults say, if he's just a, a good prophet or one God among many or a respectable good teacher, well, no wonder you can't entrust your life to him. You can learn good stuff from him. You can follow his example. But if he is not God, yeah, of course you can't surrender. On the other hand, and this is more relevant for me, it is only if Jesus is fully human that we can actually be vulnerable to know that he understands and sympathizes with our, our suffering, our sins, and our struggles in the flesh. Because if Jesus is anything less than human, we cannot legitimately feel truly comforted and intimate with him. Now, I don't know where you are in life right now in this Christmas season or how crazy your life is going to get. Right? COVID's getting a little interesting. We just talked about it as a staff today. How if that were to happen again, we're all quitting. I'm just kidding. That's not going to happen. Just making sure you're listening. But the point is this. Some of you guys... You need a God who is powerful right now. You need a God who you can trust is ruling and in control because your life feels absolutely chaotic and you feel lost. Some of you are stuck in a difficult situation. 
And what you really need is a God who is powerful to help you get through it, to literally make a way where there seems to be no way. And if that is you, can I encourage you? Scripture's clear. Jesus. Go to Jesus. He is God incarnate. He is almighty. He is able and willing to help you with grace upon grace upon grace. Now, others of you, though, what you really need is a God who is present and near. Again, I told you I had my Ezra, my son's first birthday. And if you don't know, uh, I don't really get in touch with my emotions often, so my wife does it for me. But my family is scattered all over the world. So my brother, my sister, my parents weren't there for Ezra's birth. Uh, they're just looking at him at afar through pictures. Uh, I just had to video chat them in. Not only that, I can't be there for my sister. She's giving birth in a couple of days now. Uh, she's going to be all alone. Uh, I don't know if you know, but like she's in Japan and the restrictions there are still pretty high. So even her husband can't be there with her. And so she's literally going to be all alone. And that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart that I cannot be there with her. And it's not the same to receive a cacao message than being incarnate in the flesh to know that I'm here for you. I'm, I'm walking with you. I'm journeying with you. And for so many of us, the reason there's a dissonance in our relationship is because God is that kind of God. He's off across the universe somewhere. You exchange text messages here and there, but in the real issues of life, he's not in the trenches with you. At least that's how you feel. So therefore, you live perpetually lonely, isolated, feeling misunderstood. And this is where you have to understand the incarnation shows that God deeply cares about the nitty-gritty of life. He's not just a high and mighty deity who's just calling you to do stuff and gets angry when you sin. But he literally took on flesh... And you know what that means and what the Bible goes to great lengths to show, especially in this Christmas season? He was born as a human baby. I look at Ezra sometimes and I think, wow, the Savior of the world took on baby form. Like he could have just descended as a 21-year-old in the prime of life and be like, what's up, y'all? Going to go to the cross. The Bible implies he experienced flesh, had a physical body, he got tired, he got Hungry, he became weary. He experienced a full range of human emotion, things like excitement or sorrow or feeling hurt or backstabbed by someone. And in the disciples, the 12 of them, Scripture even seems to say he actually had favorites. He knows what it's like to have certain people that he likes better than other people. He understands everything of what it means to be human. And so if you need encouragement and comfort, Jesus is incarnate. He's very much in the flesh as your brother and sister sitting next to you now. So the same encouragement to you. If that's what you need, go to Jesus. It is only in the incarnate God who took on flesh and dwelt among his people that we can find hope, rest, intimacy, and security. And finally, what we all need more than just a powerful God or a present God is a gracious God. Gracious God. Um, I mean, I, I share very readily with the pastoral staff and with my wife, but I mean, I've, I've been pastoring for a good amount of time now, and like, I, I'm like, I feel like I need to take a preaching break, because man, it's, it's like tough preaching, because the description I always give is, I feel like I'm drawing from a well that's like getting more and more empty progressively. And I'm sure some of you guys feel like that in your Christian walk, where whatever vitality you had as a Christian in your faith, it's getting more and more sapped and more and more dry and you're feeling more and more imposter. In fact, I hear some of the members of our church struggle with feeling condemned either by the community or by themselves for whatever reason. And that's because in the end of the day, what we all need more than anything else is we need to be shown and experience grace. 
You need to know what it feels like. And the thing is, if you're struggling with feeling unworthy or you have a habitual sin that's plaguing your life, that's making you feel stuck or making you feel condemned or you feel judged by the people around you, the glory of the Advent is this, that God in perfect form manifested in the flesh was a God full of grace. That you will inundate you with grace. That if you show up to Sunday a thousand times feeling struggling and condemned in your, in your Christian walk, in your relationships, in the home, in your marriage, that God will forgive you a thousand and one times. And the beauty of Romans is for where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. When there's grace and sin, grace always wins. And that's what the Christmas is about. That's what the cross is about. You cannot out the grace of God. And so as we enter the season of Advent, I encourage you, try to get through the noise of the, the holiday season. All those things are good as well, but orient your hearts and minds to Jesus, God incarnate who took on flesh to draw near to you, to draw near to me in grace and truth. Let's pray together. If I can just lead us in one prayer topic. Again, like I mentioned, first and foremost, a lot of us, we just totally neglect the foundation of the house of faith altogether which is Christ. We just sang about it. Christ is the cornerstone. And some of you, you just have not given a thought to Jesus in such a long time. And that very well may be the reason you just feel so off. You've been so busy with life, so busy with work and parenting. Christianity is just a weekend duty. But without Christ, everything is off. So fix your eyes on him again. And again, in him is revealed the perfect glory of God. And for some of us, we need to be reminded of the glorious deity. He is God. Others of us need to be reminded he is like us. He took on flesh. He understands. But most importantly, he is gracious. He is kind. So let's just consider these things. Lift up our burdens.